Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is brought to you with support from The Frame and Wheel, helping you turn your cycling items into cash without the hassle. And AD Bikes, the modern face of Ostra Daimler bicycles. Become bike, become AD Bikes. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I'm your host, Tom Brown. The mission of the show is to bring bicycle-loving people from all over the world together through sharing stories about bicycles. It doesn't matter what you're doing or your expertise level, if you've ever smiled when you're on a bicycle, you're in the right place. This time we talk to Jim Hunt from Canada about whether or not bikes can be haunted. We talk to Nick Raystrick about what those mysterious objects his grandfather left him meant. And my wife reads the second installment of Billy's Bicycle Triumphs, a vintage bicycle adventure from 1919. There are a lot of bicycle podcasts out there these days, and I really appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on mine. Let's roll out. There's a lot going on in the world right now. Bicycles are certainly not the most important thing in life, but that is what the show is about. I want to continue to bring you stories from around the world about bicycles and cycling in order to make positive connections between humans. All that world is still there, even though it has been eclipsed by some major disturbances. Knowing that there is so much else going on for people, I want to acknowledge the struggle but also provide just a brief break from the struggle for listeners who want that. So whatever is causing your problems right now, the pandemic, politics, health, income, your roommates, or all of the above, I want to validate what you may be going through right now and sincerely hope that the situation improves for you as soon as possible. By continuing to share stories about cycling, I hope I'm helping a little, if only indirectly, So many of us find comfort in riding, wrenching, and collecting bikes and the friendships we make in doing those activities. This is a tough stretch, and I hope you come through it as good as possible. I appreciate you coming along for the ride with me on this podcast. Let's keep rolling. You know, I once got a great deal on a bike, and after the deal was done... I was told that it was being sold by the cyclist's widow, and he had passed away suddenly. Not while on the bike, but he really liked his bike. It didn't really, really bother me, but deep down, I wondered, how would he feel about me or a kid from the club riding his bike? Was his enjoyment of cycling somehow imprinted in what was left behind? Would he be happy that his bike was getting used and having a life beyond his time with it? Or had he himself moved on to the next thing? I mean, the bike always had a great feeling to it. There was never any sense you couldn't pick it up out of a crowd, or at least I couldn't. It was just a solid, lovely bike, but still, I kind of wondered. I'm pretty sure some of my bikes are going to outlive me too, and I think I'll be cool with somebody else riding them, as long as they treat them right, but it's still always been a question. 
I guess as a science teacher, I kind of fall into the camp of Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle, of skepticism mixed with strong interest. I don't know if I believe in ghosts or not, but I do really love to watch ghost shows. You know, the type of shows where they go looking for ghosts and they have sciencey equipment, infrared goggles, EMF detectors, thermal imaging. Because my background, I find all that stuff entertaining and interesting. But on the other hand, everyone has a story. You know that one story that always comes up, whether it's around a campfire or at the end of a long bike ride, when maybe it's starting to get dark or foggy, or you pass that certain spot on a group ride. That one story that they can't explain fully. Whenever I used to go vacationing to a new city, I would try and drag my family out on a ghost walk, just because they were really enjoyable. And they told a lot of stories about the area and the history, and it was fun. Sometimes they're a little cheesy. I mean, we really had a good time when we went on a ghost tour of London. Of course, Salem, Massachusetts was also another good one. But even in unexpected places like St. Augustine, Florida, more than a place, I've always wondered when you emotionally connect with something so much, could it leave an imprint? Like someone who's a great chef spending an entire lifetime making things in a kitchen with certain implements. Does that leave behind an imprint of some type? And so if that's the case, what about all the people who truly love cycling? Do they leave something behind on their favorite route? Do they leave an imprint? Do they leave a emotion? Do they leave, well, I guess, do they leave it all sometimes? So can a bicycle be haunted? I recently got to talk to Jim Hunt, a medium from Canada. He's also an avid cyclist, and he's been on a TV show I've really enjoyed called Knock Knock Ghost. I think he may be the first person who's a medium who I've ever talked to about such things. But I was able to ask him my question about, in a good way or a bad way, can a bike be haunted? And he also shared a lot of other stories involving bicycles and ghosts. So I know that this treads on some sensitive areas for a lot of people. So Jim is about to talk about seeing dead people. If that's upsetting for you, you might want to skip to the next segment. But if you've ever heard Jim talk before, or you've seen him on Knock Knock Ghost, Jim just strikes me as a really good guy. He's nice. He's a kind person. And I was grateful that he shared some stories with me. So in the spirit of, there are more things in heaven and earth, etc, etc, here's Jim Hunt with Can Bikes Be Haunted? I want to start with just kind of a general naive question. So Jim, can a bike be haunted? In a heartbeat. Absolutely. A bicycle. Yes. A bike, uh, I've been on a bike and I've been pushed off a bike in so many different cemeteries. And cemeteries are usually a place where nobody hangs out. They really don't. But I've been pushed off a bike. It's crazy. Hi, so my name is Jim Hunt. I'm a psychic medium. I had a television show that I was on for two years called Knock Knock Ghost. 
and I traveled everywhere across North America to find the most haunted places and walked through them to prove that not all ghosts are horrible and not all ghosts are dark. I'm there to help release most of them and send them to the light as best as I can. I've been doing this since I was a child, and it was uh, it was an honor to be able to help the spirit world be released as an adult and let them go into the light and go in peace, which is something that I've enjoyed for a majority of my my 61 years on Earth. So I'm a child of 12 years old. There's so many bikes in our backyard because we lived in a a three-story apartment building in a small town called Lachine, Quebec, in Canada. So just about then, Jim's mic goes a little bit wonky, and it leads into him explaining what an active area is. And uh, I was just... Can I stop you just for a sec? Did you go on speakerphone just now, or... No. Okay. No, no, not at all. I just... um, Now you're back. Yeah, you're back. Oh, I'm back. Okay. Okay, so you will have a lot of interference with a lot of the ghosts that sit around me. They are a little bit mischievous, and I'm very sorry for that. Oh, that's okay. It's just like your voice kind of started to go into an echo a little bit, and then it and then it's come back again. And then it came back. I'm so sorry. <laughs> that's uh, they, they, on the show. They have a hard time with my uh, personal mic because I yep. kill the batteries and mics and and everything else that comes along with me for a ride when I'm when I'm in a place that is very active. I try not to use the word haunted as much as I prefer active. I'm trying to change the perspective of how people see things. Okay, so my very first humbling experience, I was 12 years old. I grew up in a small little town called Lachine, Quebec in Canada. Population was about 13,000. If anybody knows a small town, 13,000 might sound like a lot of people. But it really wasn't because it was spread out over a large, large area. So a 12-year-old would get very bored. So I'd grab one of the bikes that uh, were in our in our backyard because it was a three-story apartment building and anybody can use a bike. It was so crazy back then in the 60s. And you can just grab a bike and off you go and then you bring the bike back and nobody thought anything different of it. Anyway, what had happened was I took my bike and I went about 13 miles, 14 miles to this place that I knew people were, the adults were talking about, about this golf course that they were so angry about that was going to be torn down to build a new subdivision. So my curiosity got the best of me and I hopped on the bike the next day. Guys, this is old school. I looked it up on a map, believe it or not, a paper map and found my way towards towards this place called LaSalle, which was, again, 13 miles away, and uh, found the uh, fenced-in golf course. Rode my bike there. Loved the idea of riding the bike. You're just, there's so much freedom and ability to explore for a 12-year-old mind. It was phenomenal. So uh, this person's bike was pretty well brand new, so I tried to bury it under the bush before I climbed the fence because I didn't want anyone to steal it, and then I would have been responsible for it. And I was even responsible back then as a kid. I took a ride around the perimeter, which was all fenced in, and I could not see anything other than these lush greens that were not very well maintained anymore because they had just put up the fence and all of that information. And then I just said, okay, I'm going to go for it. Bike was buried. I went to the lowest part of the fence, climbed the fence, and started walking in towards this clubhouse. 
that I had noticed, which was an old farmhouse converted into a clubhouse for these golfers, and it was only a nine-hole golf course. Sorry, people, not an 18 golf course. And Anyway, walking into the home, I was greeted immediately by a ghost. And I'm looking, and it was the owner. And the owner had died there. And all of this, you can look up the history of it. So people might think that I'm making this story up, but uh, there's no story to be made up. I was greeted by the owner and just saying, hey, come on in. We haven't seen somebody like you in a very long time. And I was sort of taken back by it, but I was already used to seeing dead people. So in I go. And I don't have very much fear. So I walked into this abandoned golf club, walked down a hallway right at the beginning where the kitchen was, and I started hearing voices. Crazy. Like I'm just going, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I keep on saying that to myself so that I can have the strength to move forward into this house. And it was daylight, so it wasn't dark. I want people to understand ghosts are here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It doesn't take nightfall for all the ghosts to come out and play. And so I'm walking through the house. I'm hearing a whole bunch of noises. And then I hear all of these glasses tingling or uh, tapping along one another, like, you know, cutlery and all of this noise. And I walk into this little hall that was made. I guess that's where they would have their dances and stuff and their community events. And all I heard were people talking, mumbling, and a whole bunch of stuff was going on. And it was such uh, an amazing thing to go through and to feel like I was was welcomed by the dead people that had been to that golf course and wanted to go back to a place that they loved. And I was not a threat to these people because I was 12 years old. What can a 12-year-old do? But they were also very thrilled that some of the ghosts actually saw me seeing them. And they would give me a cheers with their glass and they would move on and they would not even, as if nothing was happening. Then not more than 10 minutes later, you know how birds and all animals will just stop before a storm happens and there's just dead quiet, no pun intended. I stopped and I heard nothing. But then I saw the owner of the golf course in spirit running up to me. He says, you have to leave. You have to leave. You have to leave. And I'm looking around, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Next thing you know, there's, uh, because I was trespassing, and somebody, uh, you know, nosy neighbors in the 60s, uh, they look out their windows, and I guess they saw this kid climbing the fence, and the police came in droves, like four police cars, opened up the fence, started coming through. I ran for my life to where I jumped the fence in the first place. And as I got to the fence to climb up, my bike was out of the bush, standing up, sitting sideways on the fence that I was about to get on and climb over instead of trying to find the bike. The bike was already there put for me. So my belief that bikes can be haunted, that was one of the instances that I had happened throughout my lifetime. And that is the story that I've I've lived with most of my life. Nothing has changed. And that is one of the things that have happened to me. And I took the hell off and I never rode so fast to get out of there. Not because of the ghost, but because of the police. Uh, I think now that the public will hear this, this is probably, I've told this story to probably 30 people in my lifetime. And they've sat there and they're looking at me like I'm an exaggerated liar or they didn't understand quite what I was doing. But then as the show got on and I was telling people, people started to believe and understand exactly what I saw because I am a medium. So that was fun. A lot of fun.
is there like a story about a cyclist per se who's hanging around that you've you've picked up on like as you're out cycling like as i as i'm out cycling sometimes it takes 18 miles to get calm after a long hard day and then the last two miles is purely zen flowing one with the universe but during those times my your mind starts to wander and you start to think about where am i you know can you know sometimes i'll go by somebody and i'll give them a big wave and they're kind of like a you know, like a lady standing on her porch and she'll be waving at somebody and I'll look around and I don't see anybody around. And I'm like, who is she waving at? <laughs> you know, and you just daydream and you think to yourself, is she waving at a ghost? Why did she not see me? You know, is, what's going on? When you're out riding around, you're a cyclist. Do you see or pick up on cyclists out there? Okay. Now, I'm going to define this a little bit. I, I've seen... Cyclists, I don't know if you have a program in the United States, but here in Ontario, when a cyclist has been hit, they take a bike that is been that is wrecked anywhere. They fix the bike up, they paint it white, put it with flowers on the corner that that person was either hit and killed by. I have seen more cyclists there in that scenario than I have with actual psychics. Oh, is that actually cyclists? on bikes riding beside me or behind me or anything like that. But on a lot of corners around our busy Toronto, there has been so many pedestrian and cyclist deaths that those are the people that I see all the time. And what's scary, uh, I'm a father now, a second time, and I have a three-year-old. At the time, she was two, and my wife was with me, and we were just going out for a regular ride to drive to a big park and I put on the brakes so hard that my daughter hurt herself from her seat she was crying my wife hurt herself because I put on the brakes so hard and then she said what the f did you just do and I said I'm sorry there was a cyclist right in front of me and it was a cyclist holding her bike and she had died that day on that corner street once I found out about it but I had to put on my brakes, and I have no clue to this day how cyclists who have been killed in that instant, how they know that I was coming towards that intersection, and I was able to see them and frighten my family, and I was trying to avoid a cyclist because that's how real it looked to me. And I don't know how to explain that. I've had a few. So that one was um, this woman. It was a woman. And uh, she was crossing the street with her son. Her son lived, but she didn't. And this just happened last year. That's why this is so fresh in my mind. Um, I did not know that that incident had happened. But I was driving slow enough that I was able to see her. And it wasn't a flash. So that was, I'm dead here. No one is recognizing me and I don't know how I died. So I had to make sure that I sent her to the light. But I went there the next day with a candle, lit a candle on that corner and said that your son is okay. You can go to the light. And she has never been at that corner ever again. There are other instances where I've been, where people have not known that they have died in a cycling accident. So those things are sad. And those are the people that I send to the light all the time. So I'm actually opening up my psychic awareness, my 
intuitiveness to always be there for a cyclist because I am an avid cyclist. I do about, I'm trying to think, figure out what 3,300 kilometers is a year. I think it's like 1,500 miles a year. I do cycling. So it's quite a bit, enough for me for the three months that I'm able to cycle. And I've seen dozens, not just one or two, but dozens of these situations. And people might think I'm a freak or I might be lying or I'm looking for attention. I get all the attention I need, my friend, Tom. I don't don't <laughs> look for it. It just happens. I, I guess that was one instance. Another, uh, I just put things into perspective. It's, it's crazy. And they're not always good people. I can, I can tell you that there are some that are very horrible ghosts that are angry and they know they're dead, but they don't go to a light and I can't get them to go. But they will, they will frighten people that are on that corner. They will hit a person's bag or knock their purses to the ground. They will push people over on their bikes that are waiting for a light to turn green. And the person doesn't even know why. He's looking around themselves saying, I had my balance. What's wrong with me? And I can sit on that corner and just sit and watch some of this stuff. So there's a lot out there that people don't see. As a, and as a cyclist, taking my time, chilling, because that's my downtime. It's something that I love. And it's just horrible to see some of those things out there. So going back maybe to the bright side, you know, cyclists, we love our bikes, you know, as much as you can love an inanimate thing, because they're just, there's such joy that they bring to many of us. Mm -hmm. If we went into uh, like an area where tons of old bikes were stored, would you be able to pick up on anything in that type of environment? Have you ever been in that type of situation where it's just a big room or a warehouse full of old bicycles? Tom, now you just gave me an idea to look for a new show. Um, no, I have never been in, I've been at, you know, people have used bikes along a driveway. I've never felt anything from that. But to actually go into a very used bike, unique, old school bike, I would love to do that because the spirits are all around them. Those old bikes, and I wish I could remember the names. I'm a bike person, but I'm not a bike enthusiast that knows the names of all of these bikes. Uh, I've been to Barnes where their bikes are up against the wall, and I've had ghosts ask me to take that bike down off the wall because they want to go for a ride. And I just tell the owner, hey, that bike is collecting dust. If you put it on the ground, that bike will get more use out of someone if they see it on the ground instead of hanging on the wall. They don't think anything of it. They just take it down. They think I'm a little bit crazy. But then the spirits will go to that bike and use that inanimate object to use as their their hobby. People need to understand what the dead do. You know when Mexico has the Day of the Dead and they celebrate with food and beverage and they put it down as an offering? People can, we can grab that bottle of wine, pour it in a glass and drink it. And so do the dead. But they get, they get the ability to hold that same glass, that same bottle and pour themselves their own wine. So I don't know why it wouldn't be the same if a bicycle was out there.
Jim is also an avid rider, and he told us about some of his supernatural experiences while being a cyclist as well. The largest cemetery in Ontario is called Mount Pleasant. That's about a 20-minute bike ride from where I live now. And I'll ride my bike there through the night, and I've had some very interesting situations there that I think people need to sort of understand. I was pushed off my bike, which was a mountain bike, a 29er hardtail. And I'm very, very fluid on my bike and I'm very strong on my bike. And uh, I was knocked off my bike, pushed onto a gravestone, which would have been about three and a half feet from where I was pushed off my bike in the center of their little paved path to go from one crypt to another or from one headstone to another. And I was pushed off this bike at a certain time and landed in front of this tombstone with an urn of a dog. And this dog was ripping at my ankle and my leg was moving involuntarily because there was another person who was doing was going through that place as a walk. And it happened around two in the morning. And I freaked that person out and I just said, there is no dog. And I just heard a dog in the background. Listen to that. <laughs> That's my dog downstairs, right? I want to, I might send over to the other side if she doesn't. <laughs> Thank you. That was awesome. Though. No, I love that kind of, That's a blooper that we put on the end of our show. <laughs> Yeah, the UPS so man. The UPS man. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So I've had that happen to me that I try and let people know, but not as often because I don't want people to be fearful of the dead. This was just an angry ghost trying to get my attention who owned that dog and was bitter that someone had taken care of that dog because I had looked them up after a little while. And this dog from what I heard in the neighborhood, was one of the worst dogs in the neighborhood. So it made sense. And I had no marks on my body. I had no tears. I had nothing. But it felt like that dog was chomping on my ankle and just like, you know, ripping it like it ripped one of its play ropes. Like it was crazy. There's a lot out there that people don't see. And if you opened up your mind to so many different things, we have the ability. I don't ride with fear. I don't act in fear. I love, I love meeting the dead. I like talking to the dead. And I have never had the blessing, which is sad, to actually speak to a ghost or a spirit and have a conversation with them about their bike, which is something that I've always wanted to do. My job, my, what I believe is to let these people go to the light so that they can go in peace. They don't talk to you very often. They don't say thank you. They just turn around and go to the light because they are in such peace at that moment for them to fade into that light and to be taken. And that's all I worry about. The crazy thing about that is that bike stayed. They didn't take the bike with them. So it's like a calling that that's where I passed away. Maybe I can go there and make sure I can save another life. Maybe that's what their job is going to be. Can I give you one more 
instance of cycling. This one sure. you might like because it comes from my TV show. Sure. Um, one of the last episodes that we had done was at the London, Ontario Psychiatric Hospital that was 144 years old. Now that housed the military, the Navy, at one point when it was first being built, prepared them for World War II. Then it turned into a hospital for geriatric people. Then, as time progressed, uh, it turned into a institution for people with disorders. The funny thing about that is that psychiatric ward is built with tunnels under the ground that are miles long. And I'm not, this is weird because it really blew me away how many miles of tunnels there are under that facility. And uh, the only way to get around that facility, because it's closed now, and they have one caretaker for, I think it's 907,000 square feet of buildings and 18 miles, I think, total of tunnels. And the only way to do it was riding your bike. So he had a bike down there, and I go there on my own, not to release the souls of the people who were incarcerated in the hospital for any reason, but for the staff that go back there, and that was their only place of refuge. And me riding the bike was something that they used to do back in the 60s to get from point A to point B, most of the engineers, the mechanics, the pump people, all of these, and sometimes even doctors and nurses would ride the bikes to get from one end to another, only in the tunnels. And I was able to see cyclists throughout that whole television show that I was doing. But I couldn't bring, I wasn't allowed to talk about that because people wouldn't really get it. But the convener down there later on told me that he even rides the bike and he even feels like he's being followed by other people in bicycles. And it felt like I had an entourage behind me riding my bike from the beginning right to the end where I was going to the most criminally insane area at that time by bike. And when I went back to the bike after finishing there, I had two flat tires. Wow. Yeah. I am an avid cyclist. I love cycling. Cycling people can sometimes be really, really weird people, but we're good people. This is our break. This is what we get away from. And the cyclists that have passed away by means not of their own, and if you feel them, just send them to the light. Just say, go to the light, because that's all they need to hear sometimes. They don't, they don't know where they are. They don't know. They're lost people. They're lost souls. They need to go home to their families. And I send them every year. And all of you cyclists, all of you, if you take two seconds or five seconds or five minutes and take that extra piece and sit at a corner where a ghost bike is, just say you have the permission to go. You don't have to be here. You don't have to protect us anymore. Please go home so that they can come back and cycle all over again. That's my take. That was great. That's a very peaceful, very loving way to end the segment. So that's Thank great. So, Jim, really enjoyed watching Knock Knock Ghosts. You were on that for the first two seasons, and you've got lots of other stuff and lots of other places that you do work. Where can people go find out about your work and see more of it? Okay. So I've left Knock Knock Ghosts on friendly terms. I needed to go out and do a little bit more on my own. 
I loved everybody that was on there, but they were going into a direction that uh, they needed to go into, and I needed to go into a direction that I wanted to go into. I have a website called jghuntconsulting.com. Uh, you can go to my webpage and book me at any time. I am on Instagram at Jim Hunt Official. I am on Twitter at Jim Hunt Official. I am presently working on a new show, which will be airing hopefully sometime after the situation that we're going through right now. So sometime in late fall. If not, it'll be at the beginning of January 2021. And it will be very interesting because my idea is to help people as a life coach. And I'll be life coaching and helping people find some answers to their loved ones that have passed on so that I can give messages, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. But as a life coach, I'll be able to help them deal with that situation that they're having a conversation with. I love people. I love working with people. I love watching people make changes in their lives. If I can give them the tools to do so as a psychic medium, I will do my best so that they can get closure quicker so that they can move ahead in their own lives. I want to thank you, Tom, above all, for having the patience for waiting with me for a couple of months to get this done. And um, it was an honor to do this for you. Thank you. I'm humbled by you having this conversation with me. It was an honor to have you on as well through these crazy times. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All the best, Tom. Take care. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Hi there, everybody. It's Fred Thomas here at 80 Bikes. Guess what? 80 Bikes is now on Shopify. The site is up and running. It is safe and secure, and it's easy to navigate. All the frame sets are there. There's a link to the 80 Bikes Verge Sport Team Store, and you can find small parts and merchandise. You can also learn more about the 80 Bikes Conversion Program and the 80 Bikes Choice Program, two innovative and popular programs that transfer the value remaining in your old gear into an 80 bike built up exactly how you want it. And right now, we are running a promotion for our Bike Karma listeners. Type Bike Karma at checkout and save 10% on any of the carbon limited frame sets. Thank you for listening and please reach out to me with any questions. Become Bike. Become AD Bike. Fred's been a huge supporter of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast and the world of cycling in general. So if you're looking to update your bike, why not head over to 80 Bikes and check out Fred's passion. The guy used to race Ostro Daimler bikes back in the day, and when he saw his chance, he was able to resurrect that brand. He's done an amazing job with taking that iconic logo and bringing it into the future. You can help him to help us by just going to check him out on social media at either 80 Bikes or The Frame and Wheel. And if you like the AD bikes you see, remember to use the Bike Karma code that he told you about. Imagine that you were helping a parent clean out their house, going through the accumulated generations of clutter, and in the middle of that, you found an envelope addressed to you to you from a long dead relative. And instead of a letter, there were just two things inside with no explanation. Well, that's what happened to our next guest from across the pond. 
Okay, so I was helping my dad tidy out his garage. He lives in the north of England, and his garage was a mess. There's files from all different eras, family history, heirlooms, a lot of stuff that belonged to my dead mother. It's not an upbeat task, as you can imagine. And amongst this stuff, I found an envelope addressed to me. It's from my granddad. There's no note inside the envelope, but there's two things. There's a 1937 guide to Japan and a pair of bicycle clips. And that started my adventure. Hi, my name's Nick Raystrick. I'm from England. I'm a writer and I also train journalists in developing and transitional countries. Quite a lot of that is in Africa, but at the moment, I've got a toddler upstairs who's asleep and that's, that's what I'm doing a lot of at the moment. So, a 1937 guide to Japan and a pair of bicycle clips. And from that, well, I, I cycle. I've cycled on all of the continents apart from Antarctica. But specifically, I was trying to find what this was all about. Why had he left the bicycle hips to me? Why? What was the link here? But there's something else. I, I was also working in Africa quite a lot at the time, so I, I was spending a lot of time in East Africa working on development projects. And it was curious because I was working in places where they were building a lot of roads. The biggest killer of young Africans is road traffic accidents, and yet they're building more roads. The roads aren't very good quite often. They're using cars which have basically been declared as unsafe in, in Europe and North America, but they're shipped to Africa. And there's hundreds of thousands of people dying on the roads every year. More than a million people die in road traffic accidents every year. So this kind of concerned me and it got me curious. And what started off as a mildly interesting diversion became this like Moby Dick kind of obsession, like with what are we doing with cycling? What are we doing with urban transport? And yeah, I ended up cycling in Colombia. I cycled in Shanghai. I cycled in Berlin. I did a lot of cycling in, in Europe as well, of course, in, in, in England where I'm from. I haven't had a car since the late 90s. So I'm, I'm a person who cycles anyway, but I was curious as to what's happening in some of the poorest places in the world. Are they going to copy a, a model of just building more roads and destroying their kind of town centres or are they going to kind of adopt a more Northern European model of thinking about things slightly differently and, and thinking about well maybe we can pedestrianise certain areas of town and we can use last mile haulage in different ways. So that led to some pretty big questions about the role of cycling in the world but it all started with an envelope which is two weird little objects on it. In the envelope there's there's two things. There's a pair of bicycle clips and a 1937 guide to Japan. Now, bicycle clips, you don't really see much these days, but they're the, the C-shaped metal things that people used to use to hold their trousers away from the chain of the bicycle. You, you can't really get them installed so much these days. And the 1937 guide to Japan was this beautifully illustrated, slightly bigger than an Air Force guide to Japan, Japanese industry. It had beautiful pictures of like temples and pagodas and cranes, this amazing object. But I had no idea why my granddad had it in his possession or why he'd given it to me. 
So I found myself cycling in East Africa, in Tanzania. I've, I've been visiting Tanzania as a volunteer and also uh, with work for over a decade. But riding a bicycle in the country really gets you under its skin. I bought a Black Mamba bicycle. That's a, a sit, old-fashioned sit-and-bed kind of a bicycle. Um, it's a joke. The Black Mamba is the fastest snake. In, in the world, I think, maybe it's fastest in Africa. The Black Mamba is a slow bicycle. It looks like it's from a different century. But it's an important tool in Africa, in East Africa, and farmers use it to carry massive bundles. Um, I started filming these. I got slightly obsessed with them, to be honest, and I got some of my colleagues to help me try and film a classic farmer on a bicycle with a big bundle of stuff. And it was, it was a challenge. It was interesting stuff. But I rode this big steel bicycle in the foothills of Kilimanjaro. I also cycled in Zanzibar, where I rode a Japanese Mama Chari bicycle. That's um, a Mama's chariot bicycle. It's a bicycle that is mostly used in urban centers in, in Japan, used for transporting like, a mother and her children, traditionally. That's, that's where the name comes from. I got slightly obsessed with Af African bicycles. I got obsessed with African bicycles and the fact that you can't really buy a new bicycle in Africa. It's all old bicycles from the West. So bicycles that have survived the zombie apocalypse, basically. These old, old bicycles that have done thousands and thousands of miles and they're still going strong in Africa. And I kind of got interested in the idea that away from the showrooms of bike shops and carbon fiber this and well, the, the latest bike trend, when a bicycle dies, it actually has a, has a second life ridden by someone else in a, in a poorer country. I, I got quite interested in that idea. But that didn't move me on with the story as to why did my granddad leave me these bicycle clips. Although cycling, I, with, I felt like I was with him sometimes, you know, because I was thinking, I was talking to him in, in my head, it doesn't sound too crazy. Um, I thought of him as a psychogeographer, like he used to set me on walks, he didn't set me on walks to the, the nicest places, the most beautiful places where there's like a waterfall or something like that. He would just take me on a walk from A to B and you would learn about what's on that journey and I do that now with my boy, I, I take him to places but what's around you and so having this kind of thing, this quest took me on this um, kind, of, kind of interesting journey. And the thing that I learned the most was just how friendly and nice people were in the poorest places. We're talking children herding goats in, in raggedy clothes, but they would just jump out and say, hello, 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 jambo, jambo, jambo. I like you. I like you, sir. Really nice welcome, which is really interesting because you don't often get that in your cycling in, in the UK. Um, I went on a club ride in the Rift Valley and I just cycled in some stunning places. And then, yeah, then I, then I got back home, realized I hadn't really got to the, to the bottom of as to why I'd been left this envelope. So I continued the mystery and I asked my, uh, I asked my grandma, like, what, did Fred ever go to Japan? No, she thinks not. So she couldn't really help me with a mystery. But I was, you know, I, I continued to be curious. I continued to ride bicycles and I thought, right, hold on, wait. My granddad, he went to Berlin in 1938. This is, this is interesting. That's something my grandma told me. He didn't go to Japan, he went to Berlin. So 
So obviously I had to cycle to Berlin, so I cycled to Berlin via a few other places too. I was on a Brompton and I cycled from Bristol where I was living at the time through to Brighton to Berlin and I cycled again, no clues. But I did find out that a lot of people went to Berlin from Britain in the late 30s. In fact, there was people going on holiday to Berlin in 1939, which is fascinating. I got deep into my research onto the 1930s media because my granddaughter left a lot of magazines from the 1930s and I spent some time with these. And it was amazing because some people were saying, ah, there's about to be a massive war and we should all be thinking about that. And other people were just ignoring it completely. And it's fascinating because I, I kind of draw some parallels between 1930s Europe and the present day, if you like. Not just with climate change, but just with the way that the 1937 Guide to Japan was blaming certain groups. It was dehumanizing certain groups and it was ultra-nationalist, but also populist. And it's like, I, I found some fascinating parallels between the 1930s and now. So the next place I went to was Colombia and I've always been fascinated by what's been going on with Colombia's infrastructure because Colombia is at the crossroads. It's one of these countries that's not rich, it's not poor. Most people live in a middle income country. Their transport policy is excellent. They've got these ciclovias, as they call them, these days where they close off the capital city and various other cities and everyone cycles. They've got more cycleways than other comparable countries. So they haven't just decided we're going to build lots of roads for cars and that's what's going to happen. It was amazing because I hadn't expected that I'd have been taken down this route, but there I was. I, I cycled in the Andes and I cycled in Bogota. I cycled in other places in Colombia and I realized that you can still have a modern developing country and you could put bicycles right at the heart of how you decide to do transport. And it was fun, that's a great thing. See, Clovia wasn't a political party political event, it was a carnival atmosphere. See, Clovia is an event which started out in, in Bogota in Colombia, and it's a day when they close down the majority of the roads in the city. It happens elsewhere in Colombia and elsewhere around the world now. What happens is, as well as bicycles taking over, you have pedestrians, you have guinea pig races, aerobicides, Michael Jackson impersonators, all sorts of crazy stuff happening. And the entire atmosphere of the city changes, which is important because it's not easy to get exercise if you're living in a large town miles away from sports facilities. So it's, to me, it, it was a beautiful thing. So finally, of course, the part of the quest I had to end up in Japan, so I went to Tokyo and I, I cycled in, in Japan and Tokyo. I learned so much. Every single country that I visited, I learned a lot about how people ride their bicycles, how you can organize your transport infrastructure, and it was always the people, very interesting people, wherever I went, the whole journey, it was a blast. And it was also good because I felt like I was kind of with my granddad, like he'd sent me off on this crazy journey. I'd taken it up and, well, 
you know, I, I, I did have to write it up. And so I wrote a book. It's called The Bicycle Slip Diaries. It's on nickrayswick.com. That's N-I-C-K-R-A-I-S-T-R-I-C-K.com. It's also on Kindle. And hopefully when I get around to it, there's going to be an audio book too. Also, I'm I'm on uh, nickrayswick.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. You know, one of the things that slowed me down reading your book was every time you mentioned a bike, I would stop to go look it up on eBay to see if I could buy it <laughs> or to see what it looked like. What were some of the different bikes that you, you talked about? I mean, there was the Black Mamba bike. So the important thing I'd like to say about the Bicycle Tip Diaries is that it's aimed at a general reader and it's about like adventure and it's about uh, loss and grandparents and crazy journeys and all of this and the people that I met. But obviously, I'm a bit of a bicycle geek, so I did ride different bikes. And there's a classic, old-fashioned kind of set-up-and-beg, as we call it in the UK, kind of bicycle that they're still making in China, which is the classic, traditional African bicycle. And so I bought one of those in Africa, and to come full circle, I ended up buying one in, in China as well. Was that the Flying Pigeon? That's the Flying Pigeon. Oh, you're never going to yeah, get yeah. to sell one of those. Exactly. Well, Iceland. <laughs> Reykjavik. I saw my first flying pigeon in Reykjavik. They're an amazing, beautiful bike. They're amazing. But, like, since I wrote the book, I discovered that, like, there are these rally forums where people geek out on kind of early 20th century rallies, and actually they're kind of copies. So they're making now a copy of the bike which is, like, 100 years old. And I find that, I find that bonkers, but it's still... It's still a practical, efficient bicycle, you know? I find that pretty curious. But, I mean, I, I think, I suppose, part of what I'm about is uh, just riding any bike. You know, I've got a mountain bike. I've got a road bike. You know, and I've got a bike that I just ride in town that I don't mind so much if someone steals it. No one has for the last 10 years because it looks such a mess and it doesn't really work all that well. But, uh, you know, I think sometimes people in the bicycle community, they get kind of almost like fetishizing into bicycles and it's got to be the best bike well, it, it doesn't really matter as long as it's um, you know as long as you're getting there quicker than walking then you're good <laughs> excellent well thank you very much for being on thanks okay. so much I really sure. appreciate the support cheers now thank you bye bye yep. Okay, to the mid-roll thank yous. Giving gratitude for the people listening and sharing stories and just being a part of the project. First of all, thank you to all the people downloading 60,000 times in over 60 countries. Thank you very much. It really helps when people follow and leave positive reviews online. So for following on Podbeam, which is where I host it from, thanks Philip B81, Herx Asimbiskelet, Bjorn, Jess, CC Ryder, Big Moose, Simon on the Mark, Stocky, Roy G, John N, Moltenier, and Triss. Thanks very much to you folks and everybody who's following on wherever they're listening from. Thanks for following and sharing anywhere. So also want to give a shout out to Roy Grimberg and Philip Muller and Jeremy Duke. Um, some of the folks who are helping on Patreon. As you probably heard, the goal at this point is just to break even with making this show. 
and still being able to make and send out free stickers and such like that. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help me to do that. Just go to patreon.com and look for the Bike Karma podcast. Another way to help out the show is to help the people who help us. So if you go and check out Fred Thomas's two businesses, either the Frame and Wheel, if you want to buy or sell used bicycles or parts or accessories, the Frame and Wheel is a great place to go. Or check out AD Bikes Redux, the new incarnation of Ostrodaimler bicycles from back in the day. Just following either or both of those on social media greatly helps us because it helps Fred to continue to help us. And a quick apology, I am sorry that it has been taking a while to get out the episodes, but getting through the end of the school year this year was kind of challenging. I really missed being in school and being able to help the kids directly. So I know the episodes haven't been coming out as fast and furious, and if you are waiting for your story to get aired, it is in the pipeline. So thank you for everybody who shared stories and are just patiently waiting for them to get aired. I know it's quite easy to get distracted in the world the way it is right now, but don't forget to do your ABC quick checks. So anytime when you finally get that motivation to get on the bike and get out there, take a moment just to do that quick ABC quick check. And that's A for air. Check the air in your tires. Make sure it's good. Second is B for brakes. Make sure you check your brakes. Make sure they're not excessively worn. Make sure they're going to stop you. And then C is for chain line. Check your chain line. Make sure the drive train is good and it's basically together and not too dirty and properly lubricated. Last thing you want is to have to break your chain halfway through a ride. And the quick stands for a quick release check, where you check your quick releases or through axles or the bolts that are holding on your wheel and you make sure that the wheels are holding on correctly. If I had a nickel for every time somebody brought a bike for me to look at and the wheels were just barely holding on, I would have several nickels. And then finally do a quick overall check of your bike. Get in the habit of doing an ABC quick check every single time before you ride, before you go barreling down a big hill. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show. Come back with me to a time long ago in the golden age of American-made bicycles. Though they never really made their own complete bikes, New Departure from Bristol, Connecticut made a rear-wheel hub with a built-in coaster brake. These hubs were deluxe upgrades on many brands of the day. Many are still rideable and serviceable today over a hundred years later. Way back in 1919, before the internet, television, and even commercial radio, New Departure was marketing their superior bicycle hubs via the adventures of Billy Banning. Here at Bike Karma, I found a copy of this promotional book and will bring you a chapter each episode until the saga is complete. So come back with me to 1919, when Billy Banning's life was forever changed by a bike with a very special rear wheel. Travel back through time to experience Billy's Bicycle Triumphs. So here we are, back with Billy. Chapter 2, Second Triumph. Bicycle brings Billy a wonderful friend. Billy was ambitious to do things with his bicycle besides play. 
he had an opportunity to buy a newspaper route, and in taking it over with his father, told him how quickly he could deliver the morning and evening papers and still have plenty of time left in which to do his errands for mother and play. His father liked the spirit he displayed and encouraged him to undertake the work, knowing that a venture of this kind would teach him the value of time and money. The route was purchased, and it was not long before Billy had doubled the numbers of his customers, as he found he could deliver the papers much more quickly than the boys on foot. Earning real money made him feel like a man. He was glad he did not have to go to mother every time he wanted a dime for the movies. It was a proud boy who came home one night with a pair of shoes and a hat bought with the money saved from his earnings. His mother encouraged him to save a little each week, so every Monday afternoon when he went to the railroad station for his papers, he stopped at the city bank and deposited a share of his earnings. It was fun to see his figures grow. Mr. Ingalls, the president of the bank, came to notice the boy who came so regularly, and one day he hailed him as he was going out and called him into his office. Billy doffed his hat politely and stood in front of the president's desk, not at all embarrassed by the keen glance the great man gave him over the top of his glasses. Yikes. Billy, I hope your uh-oh feelings are happening. Your name is Banning, isn't it, young man? Yes, sir. You come here and deposit money every week, don't you? Yes, sir. Do you mind letting me look at your book? No, sir, said Billy, as he reached into his pocket and handed the president his bank book. Well, that's very fine, very fine. You haven't missed a week, have you, Billy? No, sir, and I don't intend to. It's really fun saving money once you get started. Do you mind telling me what you do to earn this money? I noticed you with your school books, and you can't have many hours in which to work and play, too. Why, I sell newspapers, sir. I have a morning and an evening route that brings me in about a dollar and a half a day, and I always make a point to save a dollar of it. You see, Father bought me a bicycle to improve my health, and when I got real strong, I was sure I could use my wheel to cover a good-sized route twice a day, and do it so quickly that I would have plenty of time for recreation and doing a few errands for Mother. It's easy to do this all when you have a bike, sir. Well, well, that's interesting, said the banker. I wonder that all newsboys do not have bicycles. Good luck to you, Billy, and come in and see me once in a while. I like your spirit, and perhaps I may have a chance to help you win more money, he added as he arose and extended his hand. Billy was delighted at being noticed by Mr. Ingalls, who was one of the leading men of the city. He told his people about it, and wherever he went into the bank after that, he looked towards the president's office. If he saw that Mr. Ingalls was not busy, he stepped to the door and exchanged greetings. Sometimes the president would come out and shake hands with him and inquire about business. In fact, they became friends. I just nothing, can't. I just there's can't. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing about that. This is just an old man in a in a bank taking time to notice a boy with money. Mm-hmm. One day he asked Billy what he did with his Saturdays. Oh, replied Billy. I do a few odd chores around the house, clean up the yard for Sunday, do errands for mother, and then I go off with the boys for a ride, usually a good long one. Hmm, said Mr. Ingalls. I don't suppose you would like to give up part of your day to do a little work, would you, Billy? Why, certainly, replied Billy. A ride is a ride, and work is play, if you can ride a bicycle while you do it. Well, a friend of mine, the florist down the street, came in the other day and was telling me that his Saturday business is getting so big... It is more than his delivery clerk can attend to. 
He said he wished he could get a good, reliable boy to deliver some of the smaller boxes and save him the necessity of putting on another team and an additional man. If I were you, I would go down and have a talk with him. I will call him now if you say so and tell him you are coming. Billy assented and was soon on his way to the florist in eager anticipation of an interview that might make him an opportunity of using his bike to good advantage. His hopes were realized, and on every Saturday following, Billy spent the afternoon delivering packages. For this service, he was given $2. Often, the customers would insist on tipping him a nickel or a dime for prompt service, and he soon found that all his time was not taken up by the florist orders. So he went to his employer with a proposition that he should take on a dry goods store and deliver their packages also. As the florist was quite willing, Billy bought a wire carrier for his bike and doubled his Saturday earnings. His bank account was now growing rapidly, and one Saturday night he said to his mother, And the best part of it all is, mother, I do all of this riding and never get tired, thanks to my new departure coaster brake. It not only makes pedaling easy when I have to pedal, but half the time my feet are at rest and I am coasting either downgrade or over the level stretches of road. It's fun every minute of the time. I'm never afraid of collisions, and although I have to go through streets where traffic is heavy, for my new departure is there every minute, and if there is the slightest chance of a collision, all I have to do is apply the brake and everything is okay. I can stop in less than a wheel's length. In fact, I have better control over my bicycle than the rider of any other conveyance on the street. No wonder they say that the new departure is the brake that brought the bike back. I want Dad to get on and ride some night and just see the difference between my bicycle with the new departure in it and the bicycle he rode when he was a boy, when he had to depend on a heavy, clumsy spoon brake that was hard to operate and gave him so many headers. Meanwhile, every boy in the neighborhood to whom Billy had shown his bank book began to get the earning and saving habit. It was a common sight to see two or three boys with well-laden baskets skimming along over the pavements delivering the ingredients of various Sunday dinners, and boys with bank books became the most common thing of all. Okay, I know you all want me to keep reading on to the third chapter, but we shall have to wait. Well, the third chapter is, of course, called The Third Triumph, and Billy will be meeting the banker friend's charming daughter. More to come. I'm used to being content alone. Not necessarily happy, but content in my own company. Growing up with no brothers or sisters, it was kind of like a survival thing. Earlier this spring, I was on a walk with my wife, trying to get out of the house. We were walking through our town's historic section. We talked a lot and had kind of just fallen into this comfortable silence that we can have, where we're just kind of breathing and walking, exploring together, but we're kind of in our own thoughts. And I looked onto the sidewalk and I saw a headset bearing race right on the edge of the sidewalk and it allows the handlebars to turn freely it's the bearings for the handlebars i looked up instinctively there were no piles of bikes inside yards there was no repair stand there were no bicycles chained to porches there were no signs that there was another bicycle enthusiast anywhere around me but there was undeniable evidence that someone had been wrenching on bikes somewhere where I was walking, or not that far away. And as I took it all in, I uncontrollably, involuntarily, smiled. 
Hopefully not in a creepy way, but I was just, it made me feel good to realize that there's others like me out there. There is no way this part could have come out of a bike accidentally. You have to fully disassemble the handlebars and the headset to get this bearing race out of there. Somewhere inside one of these houses was somebody else who was wrenching on bikes. Okay, my wife pointed out, yeah, it could have fallen out of a truck on the way to the transfer station, but even so, it was just a sign, it was an artifact that somewhere, someone was taking a headset apart and it fell out onto the street. Just this little scrap of evidence, this little thing in the middle of nowhere, probably the only bike part sitting on the ground for two miles. This little scrap of evidence, this little tiny thing had somehow made me feel more connected to others in the world. So I guess sometimes, even though I'm really good at being on my own, I forget about how good it is to realize that I am connected to the rest of the world. I guess it's part of why I do this show. I, I'm still surprised how easy it is to connect with other people through a shared love of something like bicycles. Maybe I'm hoping what these stories do is just like finding a bicycle part on the ground. There's this comfort in knowing you're not the only cyclist who smiles on a crazy downhill, even though you're a little bit scared. I don't fully understand why, but I did feel better when my mentor and mechanic also admitted to really silly mistakes like having accidentally put on quick release springs backwards once or twice. And how many times have you seen people reassuring each other online that it's okay to fall down the first few times that you use clipless pedals? I've seen the good this can bring out. People reassuring and caring for each other after a crash. Someone stepping in at a swap meet to keep somebody else from overpaying for a part. People stepping up to pay more for a bike when they know that it's been severely underpriced. I mean, I know the name of my show is Bike Karma, but people do sometimes step up and take care of each other in the cycling community. Hopefully without getting too hokey here. It's just a good feeling for us humans to realize that we do have things in common with each other. It makes the world beyond ourselves less scary because we know there are others like us. Allies who empathize and identify with each other. When we ride, when we wrench, when we show our bicycles, we are part of a community. We might not like everyone or agree with everyone in that community, but there is a reminder embedded in the enjoyment that we all have most of the same DNA. The joy I feel exploring every street in my town, in my state, in my country, in my world by bike is a joy that everybody who dabbles in bicycles should and could be able to feel, but it doesn't always work that way for everyone. I realize that not all people can explore as freely as I do. I get nervous being near threatening signs placed near legally open areas in confusing locations. There's one in particular that says, if you can read this, the dogs can get you, even though you can read it from where you have every legal right to be. I feel the discomfort of sometimes using the old right-of-ways that go from school to school that get pretty close to people's houses, sometimes even sharing a driveway, but I've never yet had the police called on me for doing so. I see the haters looking at me who would prefer that no one is riding through their cul-de-sac to a trailhead that they tried their very best to restrict the use of, but it has never ended up in violence towards me. I'm sad that people who bike like me, who feel joy like me on a bike, do not yet enjoy the same freedom as I do. 
Cyclists of every shape and skin tone should be allowed to safely explore and enjoy what we should all be able to tap into. I am dedicated to helping this change for the better, and I hope that sharing bicycle stories from around the world from all kinds of people will help in some small way to move that in the right direction. If you have a story that you think would be good for the show, could be about riding, could be about wrenching, collecting, or anything involving bicycles and people, please email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and back to the show. Well, you've reached the end of another episode of the Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast. I hope you liked it. I'd like to thank our guests, Jim, Nick, and my wife, Liz. And as always, would like to thank Keller Glass and the band Mob Jack for their opening and closing theme music. You can search them up on mobjackmusic.com or search up Keller Glass to see what he's doing lately. All the other music used in the program is royalty-free, attribution-free music, and we would like to thank those musicians as well. If you have a question or comment, an idea for a story, or perhaps you have a product that you think would be a good fit for sponsorship on the show, you can email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. That's bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. Free stickers are also available. If you have a shop or organization, I can send you a big one for the door and then some little ones to hand out. Have some really exciting stories lined up in the pipeline for you, so be watching out for that. The Bike Karma Bicycle Stories podcast is the intellectual property of Thomas Brown. All rights, including copyright, trademarks, and artwork, most of which done by my family. All those rights are asserted and reserved. Please stay well, stay vigilant, and take a little comfort in the past, especially from the flu of 1918. We all want things to go back to normal, but it is going to take some time. We can still learn a lot from history. Take care, my friends, and until next time, keep it real. Like these that I